Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. This is season two, episode five. We all know that you've been waiting for it. This is our review episode of Moss Flower. Whoa, this is exciting to get to. I can't believe that we're already to the review episode. Um, as always, I'm your host, Colin, but we also have the other hosts, the uh, panel of contributors, um, Trevor, William, and Tiff. Uh, how are you guys doing? Good. Not bad Good. at all. Happy to be here. Good. Yeah. Anything new going on with you, William? Um, no, I just, my wife has been out of town for the last three days on a girl's retreat and it has been daddy daycare for three days running. So she just got home a few hours ago and the kids are asleep and I feel like I can breathe for the first time in days. This is going to be amazing. I'm so excited to just hang out and talk to adults and not have the word poop yelled at me repeatedly. <laughs> That's awesome. yeah i, I saw that, that off uh, the table if y'all need to yell poop at me like still <laughs> by all means but <laughs> yeah i saw that you had a pretty um a pretty strict editor helping you out this week as well yeah. huh? no she is cruel with that red pen um <laughs> my my two-year-old just, just scribbles all over the page and it's like I, I've gotten harsh edits before, but she she literally just scribbles all over the page. I, my self confidence is gone when she gets done with my manuscripts. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, Tiff, how about you? How are you doing? Uh, yeah the um, the health roller coaster continues, um, but mostly on an upward trajectory. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's pretty much been ruling my life lately, that and taking care of um, the two-year-old. Nice. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us in this discussion. Trevor and I have had tons to talk about Mossfeller. We have lots of thoughts, but um, as you guys know, before we started this recording, uh, we had uh, kind of a hot take come in. So uh, <laughs> this is going to be a really exciting episode. So I say let's let's just jump right into it. Uh, let's jump into just our general thoughts for Moss Flower. So first, I'd like to kind of talk about what are some things that you really liked about this? Because I think there's a lot of really big, um, uh, there's a lot to really like about this uh, this book. Uh, I think that there's a lot that kind of levels it up from Redwall. Uh, Red um, so yeah, I'd, I want to want to get started with that. So what are some some of your thoughts? Sorry, I'm over here trying to point at Tiffany in my box, and I realized I have no idea how this is oriented in anything else. <laughs> Do you want? Yeah, you should want I start? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can. <laughs> yeah, I'll start us off. Um, I actually want to read a passage from the book. It's like a short few sentences. Um, ah, my little friend, I am grown old. So are my comrades. Their sons and daughters are fathers and mothers now, but that is life. The seasons still look new to young guys. The food tastes fresher in the mouths of the young ones than it does in my own. As I sit here in the warmth and peace, it all lives again in my memory. A strange tale of love and war, friend and foe, great happenings and mighty deeds. That's um, starts on the very first page of the book. And I just thought that was an incredible way to start. The book it just started out on such an amazing um 
note there. It's just so nostalgic and optimistic. Um, and I just find that about Brian Jiggs is he, his writing, I just find it so nostalgic and optimistic. Um, and I really loved that start to the book. Yeah, you bring up a really great point that um, that's that's definitely a theme that kind of carries throughout Moss Flower is this idea of optimism with the quorum as they kind of work together. Um, mm -hmm. If you listen to the the I think it was part one that Trevor and I recorded, um, I kind of raised the question and I'd love to hear you guys. Um, is Martin the main character of this book or is it really the quorum is is, is the quorum the main focus uh, the main protagonist, if you will, um, for this story. What do you guys think? I'm 200% on board with y'all's Corim theory. Um, I think that it is a testament to the strength of all of the different characters that they brought into it, that when you have somebody as um, prophetic isn't quite the right word, but I'm going to roll with it, uh, as prophetic as Martin the Warrior, and he is going to be so important in so many stories in this world moving forward to have him in a story and he just gets completely drowned out by all of the other interesting characters and plot points and everything else that being able to kind of sideline him in a story that he should be prominent in is so cool and it it does such a great job of highlighting the quorum we've got mask in this one we've got uh boar we've got gonf we've got so many great characters that all lend a strength and a characteristic to the creation of Redwall by the end of it and the creation of this thing that we're going to know and love um, they they all have such a key role in building its identity that I think trying to pin this down on Martin's the main character would be doing a huge disservice to the whole rest of the rogues gallery running around here. Um, I think it would be doing a disservice to Redwall itself by just saying the warrior is the one that Redwall was founded by. And it, it's not. <laughs> it's all these different perspectives coming together. So one of the things that uh, I think it was the one that Trevor brought this up uh, is that uh, through each of the chapters, Jake's kind of sets up um, some of the um, heroes with with Martin to kind of have a moment to shine. Like we get to see Denny shine in, in, in interaction with the bats. We get to see uh, Logalock shine and the recruitment of um fellow shrews and i think that that's a really good point as to the structure of the quorum is that they're all kind of helping to support martin in his role and they have their individual strengths that come out in these you know the, the adventures that they have with him and it helps to make martin shine but overall i mean they all are working with him uh in his hero's journey which i think is a lot different than what we saw with matthias if we're kind of comparing that to redwall um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Do you, did you kind of pick that up when you were reading as well? Or um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, to me, it, it kind of felt like a uh, like a Wizard of Oz kind of journey where, you know, it's not necessarily about the one person going and finding their one answer. It was more about they all had to learn as they went and, um, you know, and, and they made friends along the way. And um Definitely. It was, it, yeah, definitely wasn't just Martin's story and it definitely wasn't just him being the hero 
And, and, and there wasn't really even, you know, in the end, there wasn't one answer that they, you know, the one answer they weren't looking for, for, um, you know, wasn't even, didn't end up being the solution that they thought it was going to be, um, you know, and so it was definitely that like sort of Wizard of Oz, more about the journey um, than the destination kind of thing. I love all of your thoughts. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I have too much to add except to say, you know, I think one of the reasons why I love Moss Flower so much in comparison to the rest of the series is that I feel like this is where Jake's really understands that a full ensemble cast is so much more than just the sum of its parts. And so while we have some great standout characters in Redwall, I think that Moss Flower is really where these characters become that much more robust and that much more contributive, I think, to the overall plot of the story um, than, you know, some of the characters we saw in Redwall. We also get some leaders outside of, um, you know, kind of, again, kind of comparing Moss Flower to Redwall. We really just see a, um, the main leader being Matthias. Um, however, here we get to see um, like Lady Amber and we get to see Skipper and we, we get to see leaders of the different um, Redwall creatures or factions way more than we saw in the previous book. Do you guys feel like that's something that, um, I don't know, I guess more, more of just a feeling. Um, do you think that the characters in Moss Flower are more compelling than what we saw in Redwall? Oh, totally. For, I mean, for so many different reasons. Um, I mean, most of all, just Jake's is, he's just a better writer in the second book, you know? Um, he really, he, I felt like, you know, Redwall, a lot of the conversation that we had last time was about how it was his first book, you know, and there were a lot of things that he tried. Um, and there were really cool things that he was trying. And, you know, it was an amazing story overall. But um, there were some things that just ended up being, you know, kind of awkward. Um, and, and I felt like this was such a redemption book. Like, that, that's how it felt to me after <laughs> finishing Redwall. This just, it felt like, Everything he tried to do in Moss Flower, I feel feel like he nailed it, and that and that includes the characters. The characters were all so compelling. You know, I felt like there were definitely some awkward moments in Redwall that I was like, oh, I don't feel like that character would do that, or you know, didn't have much depth. But um, I just never felt that way in Moss Flower. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what about you, William? What are your thoughts? Same as Tiff. Uh, I I think he learned a lot of lessons while he was writing Redwall, and we see the fruit of him learning those lessons here. Uh, I think it's also clear at this point that he has plans for bigger and better things even moving forward from this book. So whereas in Redwall, a lot of those little factions that we met and a lot of those little side quests, um, like the, the, the barn and the, the cat in the barn in Redwall, that felt very one-offish. It didn't feel like that was really laying down the groundwork to do anything else with it in the future. It just kind of felt like, okay, we need a cat. We need a barn here. Uh, we need Captain Snow up in a tree. This time, though, when we meet a new faction, yes, they play an integral role in this story, but there's also a lot of lore building happening. Just like, okay, with these bats in this cave, there's clearly a lot more going on here than just there are some bats in a cave. Like this is a whole society that he can flesh out if he wants to. We can come back to this later. Salamandastrin, 
um, when they get there, there is so much that he just glances off and then moves on. And we're like, wait, no, you could tell an entire novel about that. And he is sitting in the background going, yes, I will. Um, it, it just has that energy <laughs> about it a lot more this time. And I, I appreciated that. And I, it makes me excited to keep going. Yeah. So on that, why, why does that pay off better than what we saw in Redwall? Cause my, uh, William, I feel exactly the same where, you know, we, we see some, um, some of the ideas of like destiny and like a found destiny and uh, uh, Matthias becoming like uh, kind of a warrior based off of Martin, like then body the reembar uh, sorry, the reembodiment of Martin, the warrior. But I felt like in Redwall that wasn't nearly as exciting as it is when Martin is um, interacting with Boar and is in Salamandastrin. And we see that there's just like this kind of, um, written lore that's or, or a kind of like a written prophecy uh, within the inner chambers of, of Salamandastrin. For me, that's so much more interesting than what we saw in Martin's tomb. And I'm curious to think uh, to kind of get your perspective as to why that is. Like, did you guys feel like that that was more interesting or did you, you know, were you thinking about like the parallels between those? There are so many parallels between this book and Redwall. It kind of threw me off to start with um, just the entire premise of the book. If we're starting there in Redwall, some outsider comes in, decides they're going to get into some sort of a stronghold and destroy it. And in Redwall, that's Clooney and Clooney's the bad guy for trying to destroy the established thing in Mossflower. We've got the exact same setup. We've got some outsider Martin this time coming into an established region, seeing the big thing set up in the middle Kotir, uh, and deciding I'm going to destroy that. But the framing is different, the depth involved in it. Like even the first time we see Kotir, there's backstory there. There is a king on his throne with his two children that are already feuding with each other. Um, I think this time, Jake's does a much better job of not closing loops on himself. Um, and what I mean by that is, when you are when you are telling a story and there are little side projects going on or there are side characters, there are side quests happening, Jake's did a good job in Redwall of making sure that every single side character had their conclusion and every single side quest had its conclusion. We saw why we needed to go get Martin's sword and then we saw where Martin's sword was and it was cool and then we took Martin's sword out of there. In this one we get a lot of those same sort of approaches. Like let's just keep using Salamandastrin. Um, Martin gets to Salamandastrin. He sees the writing on the wall. He doesn't even get to read it, but we know that it's there. And Jake's emphasizes the importance of it by talking about how important it is to Boar. And we get to see Boar committing himself so fully to this prophecy that he's willing to die for it. Uh, he's not going to accept anybody else's help because that's not in the prophecy. Clearly, there is some depth to this thing that Jake's has planned, but he's not going to pull the curtain back for us yet. He's not closing this loop. That's for some other story. So we get to leave Mossflower knowing, oh my gosh, there's this really cool thing going on and I have to figure out where it's going. And that might be in Lord Brocktree seven books later, but I have to know and I have to keep going and it, it pulls you in. And then doesn't let go. 
I was just going to say, I'm going to chime in. I, I feel like one of the things that Jake's is also doing that works so well for this is that he really has kind of an internal consistency to this world. You know, I, I feel like in Redwall, some of the stuff that happens doesn't really affect the world or doesn't really tell us that much more about the world. Whereas in Mossflower, there is a kind of world-building consistency so that everything feels that much more interrelated because we're grounded in the stories of these characters, in, in the environment that they're in, and we see that the decisions they make are consistent with the plot, they're consistent with the setting, they're consistent with the characters. I feel like all of that ties it so much more closely together so that we get a world that feels truly believable and that's why it it feels so compelling that's i think the missing difference is that there's just a, a lack of kind of consistency in red wall that i feel like moss flower has figured out yeah it's i mean to be really specific to two specific examples from Redwall. One is the scale. Um, we, you know, uh, at least at least a couple of us found ourselves really distracted by how the scale was very confusing with the woodlander, you know, the little woodland animals in this big forest and how big is the abbey and, you know, how big are these other tools that they're using. And, um, and so in a very, you know, literal sense, the scale, um, is consistent, you know, um, within, I never got, I, I rarely ever felt like in Mossflower, like I had to, I was never pulled out of it, you know, where I was like, I don't understand the scale that's going on here. You know, there are sort of things that you wonder about, you know, like how big is a mountain, um, you know, cause it seems sort of scaled to bore. Um, but then sometimes it seems like it's maybe a regular size mountain. I don't know. So there are definitely things that you wonder about, but it's not nearly distracting like it was in Redwall or like I found it in Redwall. But then the other thing that we talked about with Redwall was the pacing specifically was how, you know, it seemed like he would rush certain parts and draw out certain parts so that the timelines would meet up. Um, and in Mossflower, there was very, there was very little of that. For the most part, the, the timelines did seem to match up. And so, um, to me, those were just very like, you know, just ways that were sort of, um, not easy. They're, those are sort of concrete ways that he improved between, um, book one and book two. Some of the non-concrete ways, you know, where he, um, he was able to add depth of character and add a little bit more, you know, um, sense of adventure. And like, there are some other things that he did that were sort of like, um, exciting but hard to um pinpoint exactly why they're better in the second book but those two things the scale and the the timing i thought were you know done so much better um but before uh we uh, move on too far i wanted to go back to the how similar redwall and mossflower are because you talked about some of the big ways that they were similar you know how there's an outsider and a hero's quest and all this thing but um the the two um the two church mice versus the two little the two twins you know in Redwall and then the two little Freddy and Cog so you have these two little kid 
you know, yeah, pairs. You you have um, Argular versus the um, the snake, you know, is this sort of outside um, evil character that just adds a sense of, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Um, there are so many little things like that. And that's why I kind of felt like it was the redemption is because he took m- like most of the aspects of Redwall and put them into Mossflower, but just did it better and in a more like exciting, <laughs> compelling way. Um, yeah, he, yeah, he really levels it up quite a bit. And yeah. um, we actually had a listener question from Slagar the Cruel who asked at, the, the question was along the lines of, um, well, why, you know, in, in Redwall, we see that um, Clooney is sieging um, against Redwall the whole time, and the Redwall creatures are trying to hold out on that. But then that's completely flipped in Mossflower, where we actually see the Quorum is constantly attacking Sarmina and Kotir. Why is that? You know, what are our thoughts on that? But why is that so different? Like, why are we rooting for the invaders when in Redwall we're rooting for the defenders? And I think it's a really good question. And I think it kind of goes to show how Jake's is really leveled up. It's it. I think Tiff, you said this in our in our chat that it's like Jake's listened to all the things uh, that we didn't <laughs> like about the first book, and then just like wrote you know Redwall over again and fixed all that. Well, I'll um, show them. But, <laughs> yeah i'll show these four guys on this podcast uh um but yeah I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that like why is it that we you know we have so so many of these similarities specifically answering that question about um the kind of flipped narrative between the defenders and attackers and um for me i think Mossflower works a lot better um i i think that the the structure i think that the action works a lot better um, we don't get nearly as many deaths, which we'll get to later. But why do you guys think, do you guys agree with me? Do you think that it, uh, you know, kind of works better with the um, attackers being the quorum? Um, and yeah, just what are your thoughts on it? I have I have a I have a hot take. So I think to answer Slagar the Cruel's question, you know, I think one of the things that that we see is that the heroes in these stories are meant to be the underdogs. They are supposed to be kind of overwhelmed and at the end of their wits, you know, underprepared. And I think that that's what Jake's kind of feeds us about these characters in Moss Flower is like, we root for them because they are kind of systemically oppressed in this position they are the underdogs you know trying to mount a resistance and i think that that's one of the reasons why it feels like their violence against katir um you know seems like like we can accept that you know they're struggling for their virtues um as underdogs and i think that in redwall it feels like the Red Wallers are supposed to be the underdogs and Clooney has this overwhelming force, but it's a little bit harder to kind of buy into that narrative because of the structure of Redwall as a defensible position. So reversing the stakes, right? And then kind of giving the Red Wallers this position as the underdog that has to take on this much like more powerful structure or organization 
know, I, I think that that just speaks to a kind of power dynamic that we love in fiction. We want to root for them against the odds. Um, and I think that if they were the power in Moss Flower, right, like this narrative would very quickly fall apart. They'd just be bullies. Yeah, I think you're totally right, Trevor. I, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think I think it works um, in both aspects because we're always rooting for the ones um, opposing the oppressors. <laughs> you know, like in the in Redwall, Clooney is clearly trying to take over um, Redwall, and he's trying to force his way in, and he's he's trying to oppress them. He's trying to he's trying to um, uh, take take over their resources and and own them similar to what um is happening with sarmina and kotir and and the quorum are able to break out out of that where they no longer want to be under under sarmina's um rule where she's commanding these resources from them and then she's able to um i'm sorry the quorum is able to um you know kind of liberate themselves through that and i think that you're right this is something that we like to hear in a lot of fiction and it's a a story that we're really familiar with um but i mean the parallels between the two uh, uh, slagger the cruel brings up this really great question is that it you know it we we switch sides when (laughs) the story is being told on the other side of the wall and I i just find that really interesting and i think that that is um I, I applaud Jake's for writing that or kind of structuring Mossflyer with some of the similarities. I suppose you can say it's like um, it is a, a fault of the book because we're, he, he kind of is retelling Redwall is really what it is. But personally, I think it made uh, it improved on all the things I didn't like about Redwall. And I think it just was an overall way better book. We'll, we'll get to our official scores a little bit later, but I think that it's a way better book than Redwall is. And that it going ahead and stating a little bit of the obvious here. I think the reason that Corim and Redwall are the good guys in these books is because of their approach to everybody around them. And even that even extends to their approach to their assailants um, in Redwall in Corum, we see them retaliate. They, they don't back down from these fights, but the retaliations are always focused. Um, they, they don't go out indiscriminately attacking the enemy, even when the enemy is doing unspeakable things to them. Uh, they're, they're trying to burn down all of Mossflower forest. Um, so, okay, well, we're going to burn down your specific castle or and they're not even going to burn it down they're just going to light a couple of doors on fire and smoke them out some um but it's it's always scaled to the effect where um when when Clooney when Sarmina when whoever it is comes after the good guys we see them stand up for themselves and not get bullied um but they never get toxic themselves they they find the point where they have hit back equally and then kind of kind of stop there. So what about Fortunata? Because I think that if there is one criticism against that kind of take, I feel like it's Fortunata. Like that's the, that is the one particular death in this whole book that I think still kind of haunts me a little bit. Um, Not because I don't think she's a villain, but specifically how they do away with her. And also, Fortunata's death killed me um, because her coming out into the woods seemed like it was going to be some big necessary uh, plot piece. Mask being there and getting in Fortunata's good graces seemed like it was going to be a good 
plot piece. That was Corum's way to get into the castle undetected. They could have gone in there and done some cool spy stuff. But instead of following that down the logical road that Jakes had set up for himself, they just murder her and then go about the plan as if she had never even been there. Like Fortunata yeah. did not need to come out into the woods for Mask to have snuck in the way that he did. Um, that that was just brutality for brutality's sake. And I'm with you. That's that's the one point I'm a little hung up on with this book. It's like, ah, why? Okay. <laughs> the way that I explained that to myself was um, because it was really confusing at first. Um, so the way that I kind of justified it to myself was that he was he needed to get that information um, from Fortunata and that um, it wasn't necessarily about getting her to trust him it was about that once he had that trust he could find out some about some of the inner workings of couture that he could find out about you know um who maybe who to talk to um you know once he got inside of the castle i felt like maybe it was that relationship was so that he could find out some more information about couture yeah, I think you're right, Tiff. I, I definitely read it as um, Fortunata was just way too much of a contingency to throw to like ruin the plan once um, Mask had infiltrated Kotir, which is funny because in a roundabout way, that was really his downfall. I mean, he got found out because of the jealousy that had been building within the ranks of Kotir. And a lot of that stemmed from Ashleg and Fortunata, right? It, it was kind of the the, the origin of that. Um, Trevor, to go back to your question, I think Ashlake also helped, you know, kind of, uh, is another gear in the, the wrench of, um, why some of these narratives work specifically because Ashley gets away. He, um, is, <laughs> is mistreated. Um, and we can probably all agree as to how poorly he's treated. Um, but his story has no conclusion really, except that he gets away. Um, I thought that that was a nice subversion that I didn't know that Jakes was going to do because I thought for sure, you know, this was kind of the Chekhov's gun of Ashley was going to get eaten by <laughs> Argular. And so that whole twist was really <laughs> I, I like that twist of Bane and the battle between Bane and Argular and, and why that kind of played out the way that it did. Um, yeah. But Trevor brought up a great point. That was not necessary at all for the plot. It really does nothing to serve Mossflower overall besides being like a fun little tidbit. <laughs> for the record, I, I do think that Fortunata, you know, like she very clearly wants to torture some kids, right? So like, I, I'm not saying her death is totally unjustified. And I do think that Mask was like, that's the, that's the brick that, you know kind of built this wall like you know it's the last straw like i can't i can't follow through with this plan we're gonna go to a plan b because you want to torture <laughs> some kids and i'm just like not gonna have that yeah that's a really good point yeah she she wasn't like you know innocent by any regards um i'm not really an advocate for foxes though i mean i think i'm probably a foxist <laughs> <laughs> on this <laughs> podcast with what I said about Celo uh, last last time, so um. can I can I ask a question based on that comment? Sure. Okay. Um, something else that I liked about Mossflower, as compared to Redwall, uh, and just getting y'all's take on it, um, the speciesist approach that Jake's has to writing these stories. Um, 
he seems to approach every type of animal with a very defined mold uh, and a lot of stereotypes built in. Rats are going to be bad. Mice are going to be good. Badgers are going to be big, brawly heroes, um, etc. It was starting to rub me the wrong way in Redwall that he was just building out these stereotypes and and showing us, I guess, everybody of this mold is going to be a bad guy. Um, taking that and thinking about like real life implications of that. Eh? But in this book, he started subverting that a little bit. We get uh, characters from these different molds that are intentionally breaking their molds we're seeing character growth we're seeing um gingivere turning to the good side uh, i love after gingivere stands up for martin even in the first chapter yeah we've got ashleg realizing that um you know being a being a subservient rat maybe isn't all it's cracked up to be and he maybe he's gone off and found a farm for himself like gingivere who knows um but just what do we think jake's is thesis statement is uh about the species in redwall at this point um how are we feeling about these stereotypes and his beginning to break them a little bit i just want to chime in real quick because i know trevor trevor's got something to share on this because we've kind of talked about it um just a correction for you william uh ash lake is a pine martin not a rat so darn it uh, <laughs> Leave it in. Let everybody come at me in the comments. I'm good for it. <laughs> I'll own it. <laughs> I like the idea that there are some like t- former 12 year olds that are just like going to really come hard at us with all of the email over. <laughs> it's a pine oh, Martin man. in all caps. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen all the tomatoes thrown at my house for all the Fox comments, uh, I'll share some photos. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, you bring up a really good point william because i think that i i don't believe that jake's ever intended there to be any kind of overt racism or or even like a subtext of racism in these stories i think that there is just a codification of good and evil for him that you know he it's like it's like putting a person in a in stormtrooper armor you know and like you know that that's a bad person. There has to be some kind of like symbolism there to to just very easily establish this is a good character, this is a bad character. And through the series, I think he's really deliberate in that, in, in giving us, you know, kind of this deliberation between this is a bad character and this is a good character and they don't cross over. Um it is the biggest criticism that I have of this book, though, because I think that there could be an unkind reading of this this trope that does assign a certain kind of racism to the way that he treats these characters. And I think that I, I want to revisit this conversation when we talk about um, Outcast of Redwall, because I think that is the one book in the series where there's a possibility to have a different kind of conversation and he just doesn't do it. And and that is the moral dimension or or the one, you know, kind of sociopolitical dimension of these stories that I find the least satisfying as an older reader. 
Um, it, it's the one thing that it, if he were to come back and write a 23rd book, I would want him to be like, could you please just give us one rat who does the right thing for once, you know? So I, I haven't been able to find anything where um, Jake specifically talks about the, um, you know, the racism uh, undercurrent um, and that aspect of it. But people have asked him about, you know, the the black and white nature of good and evil in his books. And he and, and we we touched on this a little bit from the Redwall episode um, that he's he has said that he did that on purpose because um, children respond well to it and that he wrote these books for children. And so it is something that he was aware of that he did on purpose, you know, because he felt like children were going to receive it well. Um, and so even though I totally agree, I wish there were more um, good rats, for example. Um, I, I can appreciate that he had, that he thought it through and that he had a reason for what he did. Um, and then just going back, this is going back a little bit to a different conversation or to the previous conversation. Um, we were talking about how something that sets is, you know, is supposed to set the good guys apart is their mercy. Um, and, you know, not killing when they don't have to. And um, something that I actually find really unsatisfying um, is that I, I think it was Brog uh, near the end of the book. Um, I think it was Brog was, you know, he was the captain at the time and he comes in or, or you know, and he's um, Martin has a chance to kill him. You know, they've been they've been slaughtering all of the, the Sarmina's army. They've come over the wall, you know, and they're killing left and right. And then Martin gets to Brog and he stops himself and he doesn't kill Brog. Um, and it's supposed to be a message, you know, that they're merciful, that, that he's going to let Brog go and go back and then they'll know that they're being merciful. And I find that really unsatisfying because why is Brog's life any different than the other people that they've been slaying? And so, I mean, Brog is you know, he, he was a captain. And so he was in this position of leadership. And so I guess it is a bigger message, you know, when you spare the life of a leader. But I think that I find that unsatisfying, when, you know, when they're willing to spare the life of a leader, but then they kind of are willing to kill any of the, you know, any of the regular army. Um, I just don't know why. And it seems like a, a theme in in books a lot where they kind of let the leaders off easy um, when it comes in. And, and it's always usually um, either seems like it's so that they can push this message of, you know, we're merciful or it seems like they do it for to move the plot along. <laughs> like so that you, you know, because like if Brog we're going to had died then, then there's no captains left, you know, it makes it harder to continue the story, you know, so is it just to move the plot along? I, I, so William, what is your thought? Yeah. Okay. So in that scene, I think there had been a lull in the battle. I think people had stopped dying when he sent Brog back with that message. Cause he didn't just send Brog back. He sent Brog and all the, all the other rats that were still standing at that point back over the wall and they, they let them all go back up. But to your to your question about like why why spare the leader even if they had killed all the other rats and just sent the leader back, I think that was kind of twofold in purpose. 
one, you're sending back a leader who you know carries some political clout around the castle, so people would actually listen to them if they came back over the wall. Whereas one of the lowly grunt rats, if you send them back over the wall, maybe Sarmita doesn't even pay them any mind. Like, oh, you must have just retreated and come back. But also, how many captains did they go through in this book? Every <laughs> single time Sarmina sent a captain out into the world, yep. they died. So to see one of her captains climb back over the wall, I think that was a little bit more psych damage. And this is a whole thing I want to get into eventually. The amount of psychological damage they do to Sarmina in this book is just wild and to me that felt like just one little more chip at her like mental stability well so i guess for me uh it also felt like they let sarmina off easy sometimes like it seems from the way it was described there were times where they had a shot at her and um you know and they narrowly missed or you know is how it would be put or like oh well somebody else's body fell on top of her and so that's why they missed but it seems like if they had really concentrated their their forces on just killing her i mean the whole army would have fell, fallen apart if she weren't in charge anymore they would have been completely useless <laughs> and so it really feels like they could have saved so many lives if they had just gone and concentrated on her. But it, to me, it just felt like there's always this, for whatever reason, it just feels like they they go easy on the leaders and that that's supposed to be like a message of mercy somehow. But I just, that doesn't feel like mercy to me that it, it feels like they're killing, you know, they're saying these lives aren't as valuable as these other lives is how it feels when I read it. Yeah, I don't know if they ever. Uh, I, it's it. My memory is a little foggy. I don't know if that if that there's an uh, an explicit goal to ever kill Sarmina. I think it's just to remove her from Kotir to to get them to leave, so that they they no longer the quorum no longer have to work underneath Sarmina to basically provide food for the fortress because um, of that's how she was kind of structuring her reign. Um, and I my evidence for that is that. Uh, Martin has the standoff at what is it dusk saying like, Hey, your time's up. Are you going to leave or not? If you're not going to leave, I'm going to come up and get you. I'm going to, you know, slay you. But if you, you had the chance to take your army and just leave. Um, and she forfeits that chance. I, I agree that she's, she's definitely like tortured a little bit. Like, uh, even her death is pretty gruesome. I mean, she drowns herself because of her fear of Martin, um, is how I kind of interpreted, interpreted that. Um, but I, Tiff, I think you bring up a really good point, though, this idea of like, you know, letting uh, some people get some kind of mercy when Fortunata just got, you know, pinned to the road willy nilly. Like it was just there didn't seem to be a lot of consistency in that. Yeah. Um, my biggest criticism criticism for the book is that they could not integrate the rats into the foundation of Redwall. I think it really goes counter to the whole idea of Redwall, where you have all these different uh, creatures and factions that are working together for a commonality and a good. And the fact that they um, basically um, exiled the rats from Redwall, um, I think really um, sours the message of the quorum. I, I was about to come back with some sort of a, yeah, they just don't seem like assassination is a tool that they're willing to wield but you're right they just straight up assassinate fortunata so that whole argument goes yeah, up it doesn't, but i'm it thinking doesn't back up. to like 
in the very first chapter, Gonf is in Kotir, just going around. If he wanted to go, you know, gig Sarmino real quick and just like subvert all the bloodshed that was coming down the pipeline, it was it was there. He could have. <laughs> Um, it would have been out of character for him. It would have been out of character for the co- for 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 Corum, but it we, we could have gone there. <laughs> so, it's yeah, also true know. with with Gingerbeard. Gingerbeard could have also gotten his revenge, um, which I think he promises to to um, Sarmina that he's going to kill her. But he ends up abandoning that vengeance in order to start a life for himself, which. Uh, go, going back to like the subversion of expectations, I think that's really cool. I did not like reading Gingerbeer's farming escapades <laughs> just because I thought it was boring. But, well, I'll uh, also say, even though most of the pacing um, made sense in Mossflower, I felt like maybe a week had gone by since he left, and then suddenly they run into him, and he's married with a farm. I'm like, how much? How much? Yeah, he went on passed? speed dating. Like, how did you get married and have a farm already? <laughs> yeah he found a field that had a a spouse an eligible spouse in that field they got married and you know signed on for the house everything felt like a week yeah Uh, he he really did discover for himself stardew valley and then say i'm gonna any percent this run (laughs) i love that can i ask kind of a spinoff question of that absolutely Okay, so with prequels like this, uh, a big point of any good prequel needs to be adding value to the story that it is prequeling. That's not a word. Um, But I think we see in Mossflower a whole lot of setups for things that we saw in Redwall, and now they gain a deeper meaning. Like, and this is a bad example of it, Gingivere's Farm. We get to see its foundation, and then thinking back in Redwall, it gives a little added importance to what that barn was and everything else in there. So do we want to go around the table real quick and just say what our favorite value add was? Maybe it's Martin's sword gaining more significance, or just what thing got got uplifted by Mossflower being told for you? So for me, it was absolutely the origin of Martin's sword. Um, I feel like it gives the sword so much more symbolic weight than even what we see in Redwall. Um, Getting the sword isn't just about like a weapon or something like that. Like this really is kind of a, like a legendary item from the stars. Um, And I feel like it just adds to that kind of, call it the ethos of the hero. Um, it, it, it just contributes so much, I think, to the reason why that sword was so special to begin with. And it's not just the crafting of it. It's where it was crafted. It was who it was crafted by. Um, I think all of that ties in really well in a way that I felt was really satisfying. Yeah, I definitely will take Trevor's answer as as my mm-hmm. own. But I will I will add that I, I think that the quorum is really important as well. I think the quorum adds a lot of um it helps to deepen the importance of Redwall as a function for Mossflower and what it and r- what Redwall does. And the fact that the quorum build Redwall as that place to for them to work together to um work in um communication and collaboration and um kind of like 
I don't know, maybe commune is a bad word for it, but the idea that they get to work together, um, I think shows why that's so important. And so why Clooney wants to take that over, I think it adds a lot more weight as to the defense of red wall. Um, the, also where kind of where they're at, like they're not really warriors by the time we get to red wall besides, um, Matthias, like they really are just a peace living group of, of creatures. Um, I guess, except for cornflower who, you know, burns down <laughs> hundreds of rats <laughs> or whatever. But um, yeah, I think that that helps to build a lot in my mind. It helps to build the importance of red wall. Um, and I think this whole book does a really good job of kind of building that foundation. Um, I, I will say that uh, along with that same thought, um, I, I don't know if we really get a whole lot of lore of Redwall. Like, there's still a pretty big gap between when they're building the bricks or laying the foundation for Red for Redwall and where we get to in the first book. So there's still a lot to cover in there, and I'm hopeful that Jake's continues to explore that, and that helps to deepen why Redwall is really important. My favorite thing was um, that a female thought up the idea for the Redwall Abbey because Redwall. Um, I kind of thought of it as like patriarchy light. Um, Redwall, you know, it's definitely the assumption there were there were some amazing female characters, but it was mostly the assumption that the males were going to be in charge. Most of most or all of the um, characters in charge of the Abbey were male, and so to me, it felt like Mossflower he was being very purposeful to have it a more uh, like equal society. Um, and the fact that it was the abbess that came up with the idea of for Redwall and that she was such a strong character, um, then that it felt like a little bit of a course correction to me that I really appreciated. Yeah, I agree. Well put. Uh, Tiff, how did you feel about uh, a bride at the end of this book again? <laughs> uh all the man so many parallels between redwall and moss flower you know he he had to i guess <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i was just happy to see see my boy gonf get get yeah. married and have kids at the very least like gonf and what's her face um oh shoot what was her name columbine Columbine, thank you. I do feel like Gonf and Columbine like enter into it mutually, and it's not like it's not like Columbine is given away. You know, it's like Columbine makes the choice. She's like, I really like Gonf, and I want to be with him. Yeah, and, and Gonf is pretty eager to woo her with his songs and stories, and um, he's pretty smitten. Yeah, it definitely felt like a much more equitable. Um, relationship it did i mean it still did at times feel like the only reason she existed was to be like the only like romantic <laughs> plot line you know but it was so much better than cornflowers so you know we'll let it go william what was your favorite value add okay so this is going to sound a little bit conspiracy theory until i get get more into it Something that bothered me a lot about Redwall was Martin's tomb just existing beneath Redwall with nobody knowing that there's this massive thing built out under there. Like, how did you build an entire like 
passageway with a secret door and a like, huge cavern to entomb him in. So I think my biggest value add for this one was them fixing that because I think Martin's tomb is the gloomer's cave. And I think there is a whole lot of symbolism <laughs> behind them burying him down there when that was the thing that won Redwall for them to start with, his idea to flood that, uh, to to get wood ship to divert all the water into there. So for that to be his final resting place right below the abbey that he founded with the like huge tactical move that he made to get it there. As I thought more and more about that cave system being down there, I was like, I I'll bet that's what that is. And I'll bet that's why like the future red Wallians didn't know about it needing to be built. Cause it didn't need to be built. I'm not positive. I'm right about that, but I want to be right about that. <laughs> I want you to be right about that as well. However, there's the implications that Martin's tomb is where the gloomer slept. <laughs> that is horrifying. <laughs> I feel like we'll learn more about the construction of the Abbey in Pearls of Lutra. Cause isn't that like, isn't that the, the book where they do like the deep dive into like all the secret passageways of the Abbey and stuff? Oh, it's been so long that I don't remember, but if we get there and that's what that is, you will hear me audibly cringe from wherever you are in, in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm Googling it right now. I'm curious. And so it doesn't say what book it says this in, but um, the, the south wall of Redwall Abbey was built over the northwest part of Kotir's wall tower. So they it is the same location. It could be the same. Yeah. Whoa, this is wild. Blowing uh, my whole mind. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't know if I like... I. I uh William, I can accept if this is how it is, like in the head canon. I just don't like it, you know. Like <laughs> I don't like the implication. I do so want to talk really about like it. You really hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh not as much as Foxes, but yeah. Uh I, I, I do want to talk about Gloomer though, because when Trevor and I were doing um I think Gloomer shows up in part or in book one, uh Cotier. Um I was under the assumption that Gloomer was going to be like a stingray or something. Did you guys know that Gloomer was going to be a maddened feral? I remembered that he was. So I guess I don't know what I originally thought. Dang. Okay. I just, I did not see that coming. I was like, whoa, uh, this is wild. (laughs) In my memory, (laughs) he had devolved into this amorphous thing. Like I, I did not remember that he was a rat, but I did remember the descriptions of like the water wearing away its hair so that it was bald most of the place with just like strings of hair plastered to its face. Like, I think I read this basically the same time as I saw the ring for the first time. And just those two images just melded together of Gloomer and Sadako. So like late middle school, early high school for me not a big fan of wet things crawling out of holes and coming after me. What about Gollum? It's very, yeah. It sounds sort of the same description. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. I, I have a thing or I, I don't have a thing, whatever the opposite of having a thing is. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have a thing. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, why don't you, why don't you, what do you guys think about us switching over to talk about our our rankings? When do we talk about death? <laughs> oh shoot! Yeah, we could talk about violence and death. Yeah. Go for it, Trev. <laughs> I just I got to bring it up, you know, because I've been I've been tallying up these deaths. Uh, so I I wanted to hear from William and Tiff. Um, what were your estimates for the total body count of this book? So it was like 400 last time, right? I feel like it was. Yeah, like it was. It was between like 400 and 500, I think, yeah. like overall. And so there's the there's the on screen body count, right? And then there's the estimate, like total casualty body count. So this one, it felt like less to me. So it felt like more like 200. That's my guess. I was thinking it was going to be less. I was in the like 100 to 150 mark until we got to freaking boar. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't even know how to guess what sort of damage he did on that beach because the way it's described is just waves of bodies collapsing and blood flowing like a river. And it, was so gruesome. I'm gonna say we hit four or five hundred again, mostly thanks to Boar doing all the heavy lifting. <laughs> yeah, he said he sent a lot of uh, rats to the gates of the Black Forest. Let's say. <laughs> yeah, I so Boar again threw off the numbers because I couldn't figure out what the actual like total body count for boar was going to be i had to kind of ballpark it i can confirm the number of bodies that we see killed like directly on the page is almost double what we saw in moss flower or a uh, uh, red wall so in moss flower that number was 91 91 bodies and then the illusions I think numbered between 214 and 234 by my count. So almost half the implied violence, but nearly double the on page <laughs> like violence, original on screen violence. Yeah, that's which is hilarious. So, yeah, that's so interesting because I just don't feel like this book is more violent than Redwall. I feel like Ma Mossflower is so much more tame and maybe it's because of the maybe because it feels like a lot of the violence is justified. Like I'm thinking about um I know after um Skipper and Lady Amber are ambushed and she loses her ear, they agree to then go and attack the Quorum or sorry, uh, uh, not the Quorum attack Kotir as retaliation and they slay quite a few stoats and, and rats of Kotir in that retaliation. And I, I feel like you could kind of look at that and say that it's violent. Um, but it just doesn't seem as violent as, as cornflower lighting an entire, um, tower on fire or, you know, boiling rats out of a hole that we see in Redwall. Like it just seems <laughs> so much less, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my violence is censor is just like all all out of whack. I, I think the difference for this book, one of the things that I found was like when the violence happened, it was never just like one body 
Um, there were only a couple accounts where it was like one or two. Most of the time when I was counting, I was counting by like five. <laughs> and because it, it, it happens all at once and it happens in heaps in, you know, some of these little skirmish scenes. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're totally right. Um, before we move on to our ranked list, um, if Trevor needs to talk about violence, I totally understand that. In the same way, I need to I need to rant about how much I dislike Tim Ballisto and that whole <laughs> thing. Um, it's it it was by far the most distracting thing for me in the book. I can't believe that Jake's just started using TB to reference Tim Ballisto as if yeah. we would just know that. <laughs> out of nowhere <laughs> and it's t period b period almost like with my my version even looked like there was like a space in between like how are we supposed to know that means tim Ballisto? i thought it was a misprint at first the first time i saw it and i was like who's tb and i went i went to the redwall wiki and looked it up and i was like it's tim i mean now it makes sense it's db tim Ballisto. But why did he did, did he just realize that the name was so dumb that he was like, I'll just abbreviate it and then we'll just we'll just kind of like go through it and we'll not worry about it. Well, like um, the, there were so many better ways to do that. Even if you're going with Tim Ballisto, treat it like Ben Stickle, make it Tim space Ballisto. And then even the not one word makes sense. Don't make it one word and then pretend like you're going <laughs> to abbreviate the middle of the. Oh, my gosh. It was so insane. In, ah. <laughs> And yeah. my my like headcanon is that he just like that was his shorthand when he was writing it and that when he went to like type it up or whatever that he just forgot <laughs> to, to put it back to its original format. That that's how I explained it to myself. Yeah, when I read his name for the first time, I was like, he named someone he took Timber and Ballista and rolled them together to get Tim Ballisto. I couldn't believe it. I Oh my! It it's it's bugged me ever since. <laughs> okay, but but it does make a certain kind of sense because like that's what he did with Verdaga. Like Verdaga is just Verd, which means green, and Aga, which means eyes, and Sarmina is uh you know a, a Serena would be like the ruler of Russia, and then she's mean, so he's she's a mean serena you know like <laughs> so like i understand like this is how jake's names characters so it made sense to me a little bit but i'm just mostly mad because it's a trebuchet it's not a ballista <laughs> nope <laughs> you're you're mad for a different technical reason noteworthy for everybody listening at home and not able to see our screens right now at the moment trevor's uh chat name is trevor trevor shay williamson it's it's beautiful. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I I petition for you to change your legal name to Trevor Shane. <laughs> <laughs> I I will pay I will pay the, the fees for that name change if you do it. Petition.org, I'm on it. <laughs> I love it. All right, now that I got that off my chest, we can move on to um, 
our our heroes and villains. So um, we're going to start with villains because we have a we have an incredible hot take um, served up by uh, Mr. William Sterling. So we're going to cover that in the heroes, and then we're going to do our overall rating for Moss Flower. So with the overall rating, just a reminder, uh, brief synopsis as to why you kind of rated that, and we are comparing these to previous books, right? We're going to compare um, our thoughts on Moss Flower compared to what we've read with Redwall, and we'll do the same with Madame Maze. All right, uh, let's get started with Trevor. You want to you want to go down our list of um, notable uh, villains? Yeah, so we chose three villains for this particular book. Um, we chose obviously Sarmina Green Eyes. She's the main antagonist of the book, but then we kind of have these weird side antagonists. Uh, and we get two of them in Moss Flower. We we decided, as we discussed, Bane kind of fits into this secondary antagonist, and also Argular is kind of the Asmodeus character of this particular book. So I rated Sarmina a 9 out of 10, and I know that's probably a little com- controversial, but I felt like she just wasn't as complex or intriguing as Clooney. I didn't feel like she was as competent. Um, I love that she's kind of defined by rage and that's kind of how she operates. But I felt like she just didn't have that je ne sais quoi that Clooney brought, uh, you know, from Portugal or wherever he's from. Um, I liked her as a classic end of an end of a monarchy uh, villain. If you go back, if you're a historian at all, you watch empires rise and fall in history. And usually the one at the very end, the one that causes it to come crumbling down for everybody is some kid that ascends to the throne too quickly is not as smart as they think they are. And everything just spirals out of control on them. That is the way so many monarchies die. So to see it played out here is just like very um, honest. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way to describe this, but it, it felt very appropriate um, having Sarmina running around thinking that she's so full of herself um having her own mental breakdown one cause her to be more dangerous uh as she resorts to like wilder and wilder tactics to try to strike at the moss flowerians uh, strike at Corum. um it, it makes her more dangerous and it also ultimately leads to her downfall i know we get a sword fight at the very end of it that kills her but it feels like she's dead before that it feels like uh her her mental will or not her mental will her her mental capability to keep pushing is gone once coacher floods and i really appreciated having a villain that had their downfall come that way as opposed to just oh you didn't parry fast enough um having them thoroughly dismantled was fun to watch so yeah i gave i gave sarmina a nine also i think she's formidable and her downfall is fun to watch i i enjoyed it i like that you point out she's a nepo baby yeah (laughs) (laughs) notable that this is the second environmental death in um 
the two main villains, um, similar to how Clooney died with the, I got this wrong in our episode. It's the Joshua Bell. Joseph Bell. Joseph Bell. I, I get it wrong every single time. Oh, for two. We're going to call it the Joseph Bell trope where you die from an event, environmental death, kind of like uh, with Clooney. So dang it. The tr- I didn't even remember because of our own trope. Which goes um, along with that whole thing that I was talking about. You know, they, you know, they purposefully kill so many of the army and then like the leaders just sort of get it off easy by just having some other outside force come in and kill them. I'm like, no. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna so casually kill all these other characters, then you need to go in and <laughs> and mean it and kill these evil people, like these evil leaders. Yeah, if you're gonna kill someone, make sure you kill the baddest people, I guess yeah. is the takeaway <laughs> from that. Yeah. What about you, Tiff? What was your what was your rating on uh Sarmina and what what were your thoughts for that rating? I gave her a seven. I Clooney, I loved. He was so smart. And Sarmina had some smart moments. Um, she she had some some good um, you know, ideas in battle and everything, but I just found her so annoying when she would like she'd go and run off and hide behind other people and hide behind you know, and let other people run things for a while because she was just being scared. I don't know. I just found her annoying. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in between um thoughts on her i i did find her really um in i I really enjoyed reading her story and i enjoyed um her kind of manic episodes only because i i I believe that it was going to contribute to her downfall which it did you know she backs herself into the river because she's so afraid of of martin um which is ironic because she has her great fear for water um and but at the same time i just did not find her as memorable or as compelling as Clooney, um, even on like an evilness scale, I didn't feel like she was as ruthlessly evil as, as Clooney was. And so because of that, I gave her an eight. So kind of in between, uh, in between you guys. Uh, so next up is Bane. I'll go ahead and start with, with Bane. Um, I gave Bane an eight. Um, I really liked Bane and his brief kind of stint within this book. I thought that he added a new layer of complexity to um, this kind of villain um, mercenary group that kind of comes into Kotir. I think that um, his introduction was really hastily done. Like literally he just pops up on the page and has uh, his army that's with him. Um, but I thought it was a really interesting twist. I didn't really see him coming in. I, I think that he's more than just a shadow trope. If you guys aren't familiar with the idea of the shadow trope, it's if you have a character that has a kind of a unique ability, they are going to see some kind of quick downfall downfall afterwards, like Shadow and uh, Redwall. So I, I think that Bane steps outside of that trope a little bit with his structure in this story. And he, you know, obviously he doesn't have like the kind of crazy specialty, like the mask does or shadow. Um, but yeah, I thought that, I thought that he was interesting. So I, I just, I rated him as an eight um, kind of on the same level as Sarmina. All right, let's go back around. Uh, what about you, Tiff? Um, I gave him a six. I, I think that there are some interesting things um, that he added to the story. And I think there are, it, it is interesting, you know, the relationship that he had with Sarmina. Um, 
But for the most part, to me, it just felt like he showed up so that Sarmina's forces could have a little bit of a resurgence. It felt like that was the main reason why he was in the book, which just didn't feel strong enough of a reason to bring him into the thick of things. So I just I gave him a six. Yeah, I just went in while we were talking and bumped my rating down. I had him at an eight, but I'm thinking back on it. He doesn't he doesn't do anything that's really going to stick with me long term. Four books from now, I'm going to have a hard time describing anything about Bane other than, oh yeah, the one plot device that made things harder for Sarmina for a minute. I think it's interesting having somebody walk into the picture that really should be the leader at that point. Sarmina's going crazy. She is not in the mental state to pull this off. If she would have just passed the reins off to Bane, they might have won this thing. Um, but she didn't. So then we see her downfall. So, you know, it is what it is. But Bane himself doesn't really stand out as super noteworthy to me. I don't know. I agree. I agree with William. I mean, I, I like Bane in the abstract. Um, in the sense that, like, I love that this guy comes in. He has a very different tactic to Sarmina, and it feels like he should be a really impactful to this moment. I do love that Sarmina immediately, like, sees him as a rival, and there is this struggle for power for a brief moment before she overcomes him. Um, but I feel like that's his role. His role is just to kind of show up and be overcome. And so I rated him a six. Um, I feel like he's one of those characters that if we talk about like the coolest foxes or the best foxes in the whole series, he might come up. Um, but I don't see him ever really squaring anywhere other than kind of the middle of the pack. He's competent and I like that. But at the same time, he doesn't show up, I think, long enough for us to really form strong bonds to him. Um, yeah, so he's like, he's just kind of there. He's kind of in the middle for me. Wow, I can't believe I'm the only one that rated a fox highly <laughs> this time. That's uh, that's not like me. I, I we'll have better fox doctor and get. Yeah, I, I get, better get to the doctor and get that checked out because. Uh, um, all right, and then our last villain that we'll be reviewing is Arguler. Um, and with this, let's start with you, Tiff. Yeah, I rated him very different than the rest of you guys. So last um, when we were talking about Red Ball. You know, the comparison is between him and Asmodeus, you know, having this villain that's not related to anything else, just kind of blindly kills. Um, and and I felt like you guys all loved Asmodeus. Like, you know, you loved having this sense of danger floating in the background. You never knew exactly what was going to happen. I feel like Argular is that, except so much cooler. Like, I like Argular so much better than Asmodeus. Like, I think it's hilarious that he's so old and that he could just go off and kill Sarmina or whoever whenever he wants, but instead he just sits around, like, sleeping on his branch. I think that's hilarious. Like, I just really <laughs> like the guy and I, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, I give him a nine. All right. Uh, I, I, I don't think you're wrong at all, Tiff. I think that you're you bring up a really a lot of really good points where I'm I'm looking at my number considering if I want to bump it up because you bring up I think a lot of the things I like about Bane have to do with Argular, but we'll, we'll wait to get there. Um, 
uh, we'll jump over to William and see what his thoughts are. Okay, I, I want to build off of everything Tiff was saying because you are spot on with my mind. I only gave Argulor a five on the rating because I think as a character, it's just an old eagle that wants to eat a Pine Martin. Like that is the entire depth <laughs> of this thing's character. Um, so as as a character, I I don't know. I wanted a lot more from that. But as a plot device, I love Argular so much. So I'm going to get nerdy for a second. Uh, and this is this is just like adding to what Tiff was already saying. Um, Alfred Hitchcock has a theory about building suspense versus terror in any sort of a narrative uh, revolving around a bomb under a table. He says that if you put a bomb under a table and you set the bomb off in a movie, you can have a few seconds of absolute terror as the bodies are flying or as bodies are flying around and people are dying and something horrific is happening on screen, but then it's over. What Hitchcock prefers to do is he likes to put the bomb under the table and then show the audience that the bomb's there and then not do anything with it for a while. That's going to build suspense and that's going to have your audience on the edge of their seats for that entire scene wondering, when is this thing going to blow up? Because we know that moment of terror is coming. We just don't know when it is. Every other time... I've seen a bomb under the table sort of a plot device here. There is some mustache twirling bad guy with their thumb on the trigger and we're waiting for them to decide it's the right moment to push the button. So there's going to be some meaning behind when the bomb goes off, that sort of a thing. I love Argular so much because he is the bomb under the table, but there is no telling when that button's going to get pushed because it's literally just when he wakes up. He's just this old crotchety eagle that might wake up in the middle of the scene or might not. We don't know. Every single outside scene for the first half of this book, I'm just waiting to see if the bomb goes off. And then when it finally does, it's in this great comedic way where he thinks he's finally got a Pine Martin. The one thing that his character has been focused on the whole time, he gets up into the sky and he takes a bite and he goes, oh, well, crap. And then he dies. And it's just <laughs> yeah, he, he literally has been color. dreaming about it. Like Chib Chib goes by his nest and he's just <laughs> mumbling to himself about how he wants to eat a pine martin. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved that. There was so much suspense built up behind it. Like who's he gonna end up killing? And then to just twist that on us and give us a moment of comedy instead. It was I I'm very happy. I don't care about Argular the character. I love Argular the plot device. <laughs> and so what was that rating? That was a five, but also a 10. I don't know what to do with my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you just said is all of the reasons why I just don't like Argular. I, I don't know what it is. It's like he is absolutely hilarious. He's such comic relief. And there's such a huge subversion for him because... He never gets to eat that damn Pine Martin. <laughs> and I was waiting the whole book for it to happen so much that I forgot that Ashley just walks off. And he's just I totally gone. forgot too. I, I thought he I thought he had eaten Argo. I mean have eaten Ashleg until they brought back the cloak. And I, I totally thought that he'd eaten him. And it, it drives me crazy because like 
Argular has the funniest moment in this whole book, and it's when that stupid rat jumps out of the window to chase Martin and Gonf, <laughs> and Argular just oh. swallows this dude who would be a hero. And I, it drives me crazy that this character is so inconsequential to any plot, and yet he has some of the most spectacular moments in the book. So how does that translate to your rating, though, Trevor? I, I rated him a four, and I'm mad about it. <laughs> All that praise for a four. Oh, man. Yeah, I think uh, this might be the most divisive uh, villain on our list, guys. Um, I, I I really like what William said. I think the Argular is a really good plot device, but I don't think he's a very good character. Uh, simply because there's not a lot of depth there. There's not a, really a lot of screen time that we see with Argular. He is out and lurking about kind of like Asmodeus, but there is so, so much of a comedy behind what he does and, and how that kind of plays out with um, Bane that I just... I, I keep going back to the the purpose of this rating is that would we want to like read more about this individual? And I just don't know if we would want to read more about Argular. So for that reason, I'm giving him a six. Um, I really enjoyed the time that I had, though, and I this will be the most memorable part about Mossflower. I mean, um, I I was live texting Trevor as I was reading um, that chapter of the, the battle between Bane and Argular because I, I could see that I was being set up. And I said, uh, when we're introducing the, the cloak, I, I texted Trevor to say, oh, man, this he's going to wear the cloak and Argular is going to get him, isn't he? And uh, it was it was memorable for me. So um, but with that said, I'm still sticking with my six. Man, you guys talked about how amazing he was. And then I'll <laughs> give him these low ratings. I don't get it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, good. Good news is, is that your high rating brings the average up. But um, I may lose sleep over this. Oh, we'll I'll update if I update my uh, rating <laughs> okay, all right enough of that let's let's jump over to heroes no um, no so... no no we got one more we gotta we <laughs> oh, got no, one more honorable is. mention we, we okay. have to pour one out for rip fang he killed a badger lord i don't think we need to go through a whole rating form <laughs> but anybody that kills a badger lord deserves deserves a moment <laughs> he's on screen for one page one page that's all he needed he's efficient <laughs> is he part of the the shadow trope is because he well does he have a special power probably not. i don't even think so i think he just gets lucky he's angry yeah, and Rip lucky. Fang, i thought you were uh william i thought you were jumping into our the most controversial topic of this episode with i mean also tim ballisto <laughs> no heck no oh yeah if, if tim ballisto is on the villains list he's getting a 10 from me because He's he's no character has made me as frustrated as Simplisto has. Okay, I'm sure. All right, enough of that. Yeah, we're jumping over to <laughs> the heroes. So on our heroes list, we have Gomp, uh, Prince of Thieves. We also have Young Denny and Boar the Badger. Now, Martin the Warrior is on this list, but I believe we covered Martin in Redwall. So we're not going to re-score uh, Martin, but if you guys want to change your updates or change your ratings for Martin, um, you can do that here. I mean, Martin's still a 10 for me, so I, I don't have much to add, except I love Martin. We're going to see more of Martin. I'll save my comments for Martin at that time. Sounds fair. 
Um, I I also gave Martin uh, nine. Uh, I think that's what I had him rating before. Um, I really like Martin in this book. I I think that he helps to bring a lot more character to um, Martin that we see in Redwall, and I think we're going to get even more of him with Martin the Warrior. So I'm sticking with that rating. I had Martin as a nine, and I'm going to stay there. He's a very classic hero trope um, and does it well. There's just not – I never feel like there's enough added flavor to Martin for me to really get drawn to him. I feel like I keep getting drawn to the side characters around him more than Martin himself, which we're about to get into. So, All I right. Did- and what about you, Tiff? I did bump him up one point. I had him at eight and I bumped him to nine because I I didn't love the Martin that was presented in Redwall as much um, as the Martin that we got to know in Mossflower. I, um, yeah, I bumped him up a point. All right. Well put. Um, okay. So jumping over to Gomp, Um Trevor, you want to start us off with Gomp? 11 out of 10. <laughs> Whoa, Gomp breaking the scale. All I right. mean, you know what? If Gomp himself were here to tell us what his rating should be, would he not <laughs> call himself an 11 out of 10? Prince of 11 out of 10s. You're 100% yeah. right. He would steal yeah. another number to add to his rating is exactly how it work. That's right. Yeah. No, I mean, Gomp is just such a delightful character. He sings, he dances, he has a knife uh i mean he just he's just such a fun character and he steals the scene every time he shows up i absolutely love this character i would read adventure after adventure of gonf and gonf jr and gonf the third it just doesn't seem to matter i just love this character yeah, Trevor, I, I, I agree with you. I rated him a, as a nine only because I, I rated him a little lower because I don't think we get enough gomp. But uh, it's a tragedy that there's not just like the the uh, Tom Bombadil equivalent of gomp children <laughs> novels out there that you can just go and read. Um, he's just such a joy whenever he's on page. I really enjoyed um, the kind of whimsical nature that he brings. And I think that that is very well balanced between uh, Martin's courageousness, uh, and also Denny's um, cold-blooded, uh, I don't know if cold-blooded is the right word to say. Uh, he's hes very calm and collected under pressure. Um, what about you, William? Um, 10 out of 10. I should probably bump that up to 11 out of 10. I love Gonf <laughs> so much. Gonf is everybody's favorite Dungeons and Dragons character. You get into the wild situations and they're just going to find the ridiculous fun ways out of it. Uh, you're being attacked by an oversized crab. What do you do? I try to dance with it. You try to what? Roll for charisma. Nat 20. Okay, whatever. But like That's how all the scenes with Gonf play out. Like Jake's just mm-hmm. took the shackles off and was like, I'm having fun with one of them. Um, and just ran with it. And it's glorious i've got a couple of small issues with him like sometimes when i'm trying to read through his songs i can't figure out what it's supposed to be to the tune of or anything what what is what is the rhythm what is the yes what is your your (laughs) what is your meter gonf (laughs) to be fair i think i kind of sing like gonf does (laughs) 
I mean, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I think I just make up random Let, songs like he is. Show us right now. No, 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 no. This is good. We, we save this for the Patreon. We'll have you go through and record. <laughs> we'll have you record all of Gon's songs and we'll we'll sell Patreon subscriptions. You know, if we do that, there's gonna be there's gonna be someone who's gonna subscribe uh, to that Patreon, and then we're gonna have so many chargebacks for <laughs> the poor content. I still have the hardest time saying Salamandastrin. The whole book, you know, I I'm trying to get my brain to say Salamandastrin because I so badly want to say Salamandastron. And like, there are a couple songs where I'm like, I swear this was written for you to say Salamandastron. Like it, it works so much better in the songs. It broke my brain trying to read the songs as like, I can't even say it now. What is it? Salamandastron. I don't even know it anymore. Salamandastron. Like, no, I'm with you. I agree. <laughs> I agree too. I, I, if it wasn't for Jake's pronouncing it, um, I think you're right, Tiff. Uh, yeah, I agree. It just fits better in the songs. I, I think uh, this is a little soccer nerd of of my nerdiness coming out. I think his songs are supposed to be similar to like soccer chants, but I could totally be wrong because they <laughs> have that kind of like cadence that like a uh, uh, you would a chant that you'd have against an opposing team. Um, but I'm going to dig into that just for my own sake. Who's your soccer team? My soccer team? Yeah. Who do you watch? Oh, man. This is going to be a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> my soccer team is uh, Leeds, Leeds United. They're currently oh. in, the, in the Champions League. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, Trevor and I, are our grandmother is from Leeds. So uh, that's Very just kind cool. of a support for her. Uh, but Leeds is not in the Premier League right now. So they're really hard to watch if you're an American. So I watch Newcastle United. And that's because that's my great grandmother's team. And so we're just following based off of what the ancestors followed, essentially. Nice, nice. No, yeah. we we have um, season tickets to the Seattle Saunders and um, the OL Reign, both the men and women's team in Seattle. So different U.S. soccer, totally different. Yeah, MLS. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to a... Um, I've always wanted to go to a uh, Sporting KC game. That's our, that would be our local yeah. team. Yeah. Um, yeah so, and you yeah. guys oh no you don't have a women's team do you no uh we have a women's team at our un- university but oh, we don't okay. have a men's team yep gotcha. yeah so that's soccer chat that maybe okay. that could be a bonus episode right. on patreon too because i could probably talk for ages about that but um so uh i think we're moving on to denny is that correct did everyone get their ratings out for Gaunt? i i also 10 I, oh, the, okay. the only thing that I want to add, because you guys, you know, said it all. Uh, the only thing that I want to emphasize is that he is also really smart. Like, I, I just think that sometimes that gets lost in his humor. Um, that you don't realize how smart he's being and how capable he's being as a fighter sometimes. 10 out of 10. Funny, comedic, warrior, all of the things. Yeah, he's he, I I also um man, I should bump up my number. It's at a 9, but it should just be a 10 anyway. Um I also really love the fact that the book wraps up with Gomp. We get the book starts with Gomp and it kind of ends with Gomp. I think that's really great. Uh all right, so going on to Young Denny, let's start with William with this one. Okay. We're we're, we're starting on a sour note here. I <laughs> don't like young denny um 
I was with y'all in your episode where you said, I really thought Ben Stickle was going to be the one to go on the adventure. He should have been. Uh, he had so much more to bring to the table. He had so much more weight behind him as a father figure going out on this quest to try to like make a better life for his kids. Young Denny's just there. And young Denny being there means we have to try to read mole speak repeatedly through the second <laughs> half of the book. Yeah. And everything There's that y'all were speaking there. Yeah. Every, everything y'all were saying in the last episode about Tiff, this was your word. And I don't remember it off the top of my head about, about like, hearing the words in your head as you're reading them on the page. Uh, what was that called again? Oh, I was talking about um, the images seeing um right seeing images yeah yeah okay so for whatever reason when i'm reading i'm a very slow reader because i i need to like hear the words going through my head as i'm doing it for whatever reason that's just the way my brain processes what i'm reading it kills me every time i get to the mole sections because there's no processing what those words are i think there are certain times in the book where jake's doesn't have a line of dialogue in mind for what he's trying to translate into mole speak. He just writes random nonsense because I read those sentences four, five, six times and cannot come up with anything logical. I dislike Young Denny. I dislike the moles in general. Um, but especially if you're putting Young Denny in this group and not giving him something other than I dig tunnels good. Um, ah. Yeah. Yeah. Sticking I, with that critical six then, huh? Yeah. And actually thinking about bumping it down to a five, but y'all, y'all take a twice hour. Well, before we, he gets all the way down to four, let's move on to Tiff. <laughs> I liked Denny, a young Denny I, and old Denny, but <laughs> we're talking about young Denny. Uh, no, I like him. I think he's fun and um, I would be friends with him. I think he has a good attitude. He's always calling, like you said, he's always calm and collected. Um, so I gave him an eight, actually. Um, he, I mean, he's definitely a little forgettable, you know. He doesn't add nearly as much as some of the other characters. But um, I don't know. I like him. I, I like how calm and collected he is. I want him on my in my party. All right. And what about you, Trevor? What What's your rating? All right. I'm going to do an impression here. <laughs> Listener, my boy Denny, you're be a good old bull. He be your tenor or all be dead. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> now, okay, William, if it sounded like that in your head, I think you'd like the moles a little bit more. If Trevor will come to my house and read the mole sections to me, I will bump him up to a six. <laughs> all of them, though. Not one or two, all of them. <laughs> I can see in our spreadsheet that you just changed his rating to 13. Is that right? <laughs> After Trevor said that. That was fantastic, Trevor. Uh, what was your rating, though? Did we do we say rating? Oh, he's, uh, a, he's a 10 out of 10. Yeah, for sure. No, okay. I, okay. I, I love young Diddy. Uh, every time he comes on the page, I just, a smile creeps across my face. And I just am like, I, I just love this weird dude who just, you know, he's like the foreman on a, a construction site. And he's just like, you know what? I'll just pal around. That sounds cool. And he's obsessed with his grandfather. That's cute. Loves it. Yeah. He, he's yeah. always talking about what his grandfather would think about things. That's adorable. 
Yeah, I I I love Denny guys. I um I gushed about him a lot in our um review episodes of the the three different books. Um I just love the kind of calmness that he brings to the chaos of the adventure. He just never seems to be phased by anything. He's very chill, he's very re- relaxed. I was really annoyed at first about the mole speak. However, it really started to grow on me as as I read it more and I I I really enjoyed it more and more as he was in in the book. Um I did rate him as a 7 just because I don't think he does a whole lot to impact the overall story. Um he is kind of forget, forgettable to to Tiff's point. Um I wish he had a little bit more prominence and he's often outstaged by Martin and um outstaged by um Gomp. so because of that um i'm sticking with my seven all right and then we're down to board the badger um and this is uh i think this is where it might be the end of the podcast because we have a, a little <laughs> bit of a fracturing in our uh in our <laughs> panel here i'm going to turn it over to william so that he can talk a little bit about his thoughts on boar <laughs> i'll throw this out and then i'll just i'll accept all the all the hate y'all are about to throw at me i don't think we should be talking about boar the fighter as one of the main characters of this book um i think there are other characters that have more screen time and uh more involvement in the plot uh i'm not going to say more impact but more involvement in the plot i think we should be talking about logalog I think we should be talking about uh, Bella the Badger. Uh, if we're if we're talking about a badger, let's talk about Bella. I think we should be talking about Mask. I think we've got a whole crowd of people that we should be talking about before Boar. I like Boar. I think as a Yoda figure, um, for Martin to go quest to find, that's going to uh, endow him with powers and wisdom and a true understanding of what his potential is i think he does an awesome job of filling that role and then he dies and the story moves on i think we've got other badgers coming up in later books that hit the same vibe of importance and grandeur that i think y'all are about to start talking about i think there there's other badgers that do that um but as far as boar specifically goes he he leaves brock hall goes questing to find salomon dastrin tells his sister that he's gonna come back never bothers to even send word to his sister that he's not coming back just disappears on her has martin show up makes him a sword very nice sword awesome good of you to do that um and then and then dies at the hand of a bunch of sea rats and gives martin a couple extra hairs to come with him like that's that's kind of the extent of it and i don't know i just felt like i needed more from him to really care about him the couple of chapters that he gets he makes the most of it he he chews the scenery he is that a plus list actor that they signed on for a couple of scenes in a B movie. Um, but then he's out. <laughs> so I don't know. That's my hot take. Wow. There's, it's like there's an oven in this room because of that <laughs> hot take is really starting to heat things up. Um, William, I totally understand what the, the points that you're trying to make. And I think, I think maybe it is a little unfair to have Bohr on this list of, 
um heroes for this book but not bella like i I, that i think that's a really good point because i think that she has bigger prominence but so much of this story is going to find boar that i think that's why he's on this list or is why i've nominated nominated him for the list is just because he's really crucial to the story of moss flower um i don't know what do you guys think about that i would almost go hotter than william did and even hotter An even hotter take. I do not like how I'm not convinced that he couldn't have shared more about what he knew, what was going on in his head. The fact that Bella wanted to hear from him and wanted all this support and like believed in him so much. And he didn't even send off like a message to her. Not, not, I'm not talking about when he first left, you know, got to, um, um salmon dashing i'm talking about at the very end he knows he's gonna die he's seen it in the the prophecy that he's gonna die doesn't like write a letter to her you know i just i think that how like tight-lipped he was may you know maybe it'll maybe as i reread some of the later books i'll be like okay it was it makes sense he had to do it that way you know that was his place and the the prophecies and everything but i just i just didn't like how he didn't explain himself more um it seemed and yeah i don't know i didn't i i didn't love boar i he didn't feel like a hero in the way that some of the others feel like a hero where it's this really satisfying like you know <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 yeah, that's my thoughts on him. I think we talked about this a lot, Colin and I, when we were kind of reading the book, because I, I love Boar. Um, I love his appearance in this book. I love what he kind of brings to all of, of the Redwall series going forward with kind of this like lore of the Badger Lord. But I felt at the time especially like we were reading the end chapter of an entirely different story and like boar was the protagonist of that story and we just we don't get it because that's not the lens for this particular story and so he looms over this whole book in terms of his legacy and you know they're they're trying to find him and bella thinks so highly of him and he's literally the symbolic lord of this foreign place that is going to have far-reaching implications for future stories but but you know like his tale is a separate tale you know and we only see the cross section of his legacy his story you know, as it pertains to Martin, because everything's kind of through his lens. Yeah, I I love how you put that. And I, I guess then my thought is that the lens that we get is also Martin's lens, is also ultimately Bella's lens as she's hearing these stories. And so I wish that he had realized, hey, these people owe, I, I owe these people a little bit more of a, a look into my story and to the bigger picture i wish that he would have brought 
them more into that into that bigger story yeah it's kind of like the entrapment of the role of the warrior like he's so busy trying to be the warrior to remove rip fang and to basically stop this foreign conquest that he really is to be anything else like a dad like a mentor <laughs> you know like he he really gets trapped inside that um uh trapped inside that role um i i i really like what trevor said that we're we're really starting to see the the very end of his journey and it's through martin's lens and he does set up a lot of what we know about martin and he has a connection of to martin that we see when martin is gravely wounded where he is um talking with boar at the the gates of the dark forest um you know right on the cusp of death I think that he he plays such an important role in this book. That's why he's nominated here. I do genuinely think that Boar is a hero. Um, and I do think that he's important in the hero that, that Martin is. Um, but my main critique for Boar is that we just don't get a whole lot of him. And he has a one-track mind. Like um, going back to the kind of Badger architect um, or archetype, he does what Badgers do, which is just like to fight and to only fight. And we see that being a lot different with Bella, where Bella is trying to work together with other people and she's trying to, um, you know, work alongside this quorum. And obviously she's really important in the structure of the quorum, but she's, you know, equally important in, um, you know, getting, I think it's uh, uh, Germain, Abbas Germain to Martin in order to save his life, you know, kind of what that we see at the end. So um, I think he's really important to this story. Go, going to the ratings, I rated Boar an eight because I thought that he is important. I, I do think that um, he's going to lead the way for a lot of other Badger Lords um, in later books. And so I also wanted to kind of get him on record just to compare um, Boar as a character against some of those other Badgers we meet. All right. And uh, do you guys want to share your ratings? You can also abstain from voting on a raid <laughs> or doing a raid if you want to. Um, I gave him a seven for the kind of the reasons I said, I, he is a good character, right? He's interesting and I would want to know more about him, but as we get him, I don't know. I'm just leaving a lot of room above him for future badgers. <laughs> Cause I, I think the yeah, ceiling is enough. a lot higher than we got with him. I what about him you, a, yeah. I gave him a seven too. I, um, I recognize that he was important for the book and everything, you know, so he's still up there, but I just think he could have been more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I like what you said, William, of having some room to grow or some you kind of room above for, for the other badgers. I think that um, I, I think that I also have just a little bit of a bias because um, I think badgers are super cool in this series. And I, I think Boar's introduction is really epic, but I also think that the most the, the things that I'm most interested in reading about in the next Redwall books have to do with badgers. And I think that a lot of that's set up by Boar. So it gets me really excited to, to jump into those, um, the stories a little bit later on. Yeah. All right. So before we get to our final review for Mossflower, our, our rating for that, let's take a quick break and then we can jump right back into it. All right, well, welcome back. We're going to jump into our final review for Mossflower. Um, who wants to start? 10 out of 10. 
Uh, I mean, everything Trevor said, I, yeah, I, I, I don't even think I can add anything. Um, I just thought it was amazing world building, um, just so, and you know, I said this at the very beginning of the episode today, so optimistic, um, there, you know, amidst all the killing and, and everything, there were just these beautiful moments um, of, you know, the animals stopping to smell the roses, essentially, you know, of them really appreciating life and the beautiful forest around them. Um, I just think the, I think it's got everything. I, I love Masfar. Also very well put. Um, all right, William, how about you? Yeah, it's 10 out of 10. I feel like I've come off, uh, come across as the, uh, the snarky critic of the group in this episode. And if that's my role, so be it. Um, I, I've, I've poked a couple of holes in some characters and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, this book is just amazing. Um, it is the perfect action adventure book to get any kid hooked on the genre. It is good versus evil. It is like an it is the Odyssey uh, ground down into its core elements and repurposed for fun. It is a sandbox to set up future books. It is a prequel that strengthens Redwall as a book with all of its value adds. Everything Jake set out to accomplish with this book, he accomplished. Um, and it feels like the gold standard for this entire series. Uh, everything that we approach Redwall looking for with that optimism, with the cool sword fights, with the wild characters, like it, it has everything. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't help but agree. I also say a 10 out of 10. Um, one thing that really stuck with me is when we, when we were doing our episode zero tiff, I remember you said that one of the things that you liked the most about Redwall was just the imagery that Jake springs. And I couldn't help but feel like in Redwall, I was like, really? I just don't really see that in Redwall, but man, do I see it in Mossflower. He just in every aspect of his writing and storytelling and characters, and um, just getting you wrapped up in a world, he just improves on that so much from Redwall. Um, and I think it's just a better story in literally every capacity. And I hope that other books um, continue this trend. I know that, you know, all, all the other books are not going to be 10 out of 10s. But this got me so much more excited to read more Redwall, um, got me excited to jump into to Matameo and um, quite honestly, kind of soured my views on Redwall, the, the first book, um, just because of how good this book is. Um, I will dare to say that this is probably one of the uh, one of my favorite books um, just on, on a short list. Like I really, really enjoyed my time with it. I was really sad to see when it ended. Um, I will definitely be rereading this book. I, I enjoyed it in a lot of ways. What a compliment. One of your favorite books. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, guys, that is our uh, Mossflower review episode. This is the wrap of season two. I can't believe that we're two seasons down. Uh, moving on to Matameo next. Um, as always, it's just an incredible opportunity to be able to talk with you guys about this. I love our chats. Uh, wish you guys could be on every single episode. 
Um, although Trevor and I have lots to say <laughs> in our review episodes, they'd probably be even longer. Um, so thank you guys for taking out time uh, in your day to be able to talk about some uh, lovely woodland creatures with us. Um, thank you so much. You can find us on Instagram and threads at books and badgers. Uh, that is with an N in the middle books and badgers. Um, and please uh, email us any questions that you may have at books and at gmail.com. Um, you can also send us any messages on social media, Instagram and threads that you may have. Um, yeah, just feel free to message us and, and talk to us there. Um, if you like our voices, par- particularly Trevor's voice, you can find him at Slayhouse Presents. Uh, you can also find William Sterling on Killer Medians. And then you can also check out Tiff Avery's work at Magical Moments of Many Monsters on Instagram. Uh, that's all one word, Magical Moments of Many Monsters. Um, and that wraps it up. Thank you guys so much yet again. And hope you guys uh, have, have a good one until we see you next time. Thanks all.